Welcome to Catholic Town, sponsored by the National Shrine Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes and Mount St. Mary's University. Catholic Town aims to highlight people, places, and movements that are spreading the kingdom of God in the historic town of Emmitsburg, Maryland, and beyond. Join us as we sit down with Catholic figures of all types, hear their stories, and get to the heart of what drives them. Hey everybody, this is Peter Ferguson. I'm the marketing manager up here at the National Shrine Grotto. Today we're going to be talking about the topic of beauty. Um, we have a, a Dr. John Mark Maravalli on today. Uh, Dr. Dr. Maravalli teaches at Mount St. Mary Seminary as a professor of systematic and moral theology um, and Mariology. Thanks for being here, John Mark. Thank, thank you for having me. So just uh, Figured we could start this off with uh, some basic questions, just in case our audience doesn't know. Um, what does a professor in systematic and moral theology do? Well, I'm a university professor. Theology just means the science of trying to reflect very rigorously and logically on the revealed principles of our faith. So the things that we believe as Catholics, theologians think about very carefully, and they try to reconcile them, and they try to find out the deeper implications. They, they draw inferences from them, whether it's in scripture or in morals um, or in even, even in a sense, right? Church history or systematics. So what a systematician does is he looks primarily a systematics professor of theology. He looks at what God has done, what he has done in Christ, what he's done in the old Testament, what he's doing now through the church. And he tries to put all those pieces together a morals uh, theologian, a theologian of Catholic morality, looks at what God wants us to do. So he looks at the way to live well, the way to follow Jesus Christ perfectly, the way to dedicate yourself perfectly to him, but also how to live as a Christian in various aspects of life, whether it's in politics, in sexual morality, in terms of family life, in terms of economics, all the areas of human activity. A moral theologian looks at sort of <laughs> how we're supposed to live that out. So for instance, what I do at the seminary, I teach Mariology, which is systematics because it's talking about what God has done. But I also teach general intro to morals. I teach a class on business ethics. I teach on immigration, on ecology, environmentalism. I teach about privacy laws. I teach about uh, homosexuality, sexual ethics, um, sometimes abortion. So a lot of stuff. I don't do scripture and I don't do history. <laughs> okay. How did you get into that line of work? Because that you know, well, my dad is also a theology professor. Okay. He actually specializes on in Mariology, and so I inherited uh, both my baldness and my interest in <laughs> theology. So clearly, uh, there's a, a genetic defect with various manifestations, and we're trying to isolate it before my kids start to manifest. Very nice. Um, so you have had several books published. The most recent one, I believe, is uh, was it published this year? Yeah, it was published in last April. Last April. And that one's called Beauty, What It Is and Why It Matters. So the question I have for you is, why is a Catholic systematic and moral theology teacher writing about beauty? What, what drew you to talk about that topic? Well, there's two answers to that twofold question. The first is, what does systematics and moral theology have to do with beauty? And, and the answer is a whole bunch, because beauty characterizes both what God has done for us in the incarnation, in the mother of God, in the structure of the church, 
in creation as such. But it also characterizes how we are supposed to live in response to God's goodness, how to make our lives, uh, as John Paul II says, masterpieces. So it has mm-hmm. both a systematics and a moral component. In terms of why did I do that? I've told this story a couple times. So a lot of the stuff I've done has been very controversial stuff. Uh, I've done debates with atheists on same-sex marriage, God's existence, uh, theistic morality. As, as you heard, I do a lot of controversial topics at the seminary, like immigration, environmentalism. And I was really tired of arguing a couple of years ago. I, I just felt like I was getting burned out from all the arguments. And I was biking to work. And here, you know, in, in Emmitsburg, we have such a lovely mountain range and, and beautiful, beautiful scenery. And I was biking. I thought, I need to develop a new class for the next year. What am I going to do? And I just looked around. I thought, I don't know enough about beauty, about, again, what it is or why it matters. And that's what I'm going to do. And that was it. Just decided to do it. And I, I developed a class. I taught the class, which you were a participant, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I was very grateful for at the seminary. And, uh, and then I just sent my, basically, turned my lecture notes into paragraphs and sent it to Sophia Institute. And they put it out as a book. Yeah. And it was an amazing class. I was very pleased to be part of it. Um, so you taught this uh, on this topic of beauty to the seminarians. Was there anything that you were hoping that they would take away from it? Obviously, the seminarians are uh, training to become priests. Um, so in that context for training to become a priest, what are you hoping that they get from the class that they can take to their uh, their ministry? Well... There's the general goal, which is to be a full human being. And I think every everybody to be a full human being should have an awful lot of beauty in their life and should strive to appreciate it, look for it, and create it. So to be a good priest means you have to be a good human being. So that was sort of the, the fundamental level. But specifically, there are several documents. Uh, Pope Benedict was very big on this, saying that the training of future priests, the training of seminarians should involve training in aesthetics. Mm. It should involve both a awareness of art history, of the musical tradition of the church, because the liturgy, which the priest will be the focal agent of at the human level, the liturgy, the mass, is the highest, not only supernatural achievement, but cultural achievement of the human race. And as such, it is meant to incorporate all the greatest achievements of beauty to the extent that they facilitate our worship uh, of God. So a future priest needs to know how to discern and cultivate beauty for the sake for the sake of the human race fulfilling its fundamental obligation, which is give God our best. Now obviously the the, the Catholic Church throughout history has been um, a big proponent of beauty. Um, but in recent times, would you say that um, it seemed to me when I took your class that beauty was this kind of burgeoning topic in Catholicism, at least in just, you know, the general um, Catholic culture. Do you think that the church is realizing that it needs to kind of reapproach that topic? Um, do you see it, there's a need for beauty? Yeah, um, very much so. To talk about. Very much so. It seems to me what's happened is um, Hans Ernst von Balthasar, one of the greatest 20th century theologians, Catholic theologians, Catholic priests, very faithful, good man. He recognized that we needed beauty to make sense of Catholic life today. And he has this very famous quote, which a lot of people quote, saying, beauty, goodness, and truth are sisters. And if you get rid of one, you get rid of the others. 
And he actually says, if someone cannot appreciate beauty, pretty soon he won't be able to pray anymore. Mm. And so he wrote this massive work of volume after volume, 15, 16 volumes, which he called sort of theological aesthetics, showing how understanding beauty and understanding our faith need to go together in the Christian life. The problem was uh, von Balthasar is very difficult to read, even for mm. really smart people. He's really hard to understand. And he wrote a ton. Uh, famously, he never taught. And so he never had a student raise his hand with a you know, furrowed brow saying, I don't get it. So right. a lot of the discussions about beauty in the Catholic Church have been focused on von Balthasar, and that kind of excludes a lot of people. Mm. So what I want to do in this book is say, look, we're all concerned about it, but let, let's make sure we can all sort of understand what's going on here, not just sort of specialized academics who can read these very difficult uh, writings. Right, right. When I read the book, I, that was something about it that really impressed me. Um, this is a part of my personal story. I went to art college, um, and when I left, I went for fine art, for painting. Um, when I went there, I was prepared to get educated about, you know, maybe philosophies or things that would help guide the creation of the works that I was making. And I came out of that school very disillusioned. Um, a lot of my classmates, including myself, were very, uh, maybe more confused than when we went in. Um, and I know that's not just a situation in art college, but, um, so when I came to the Mount, um, working at the grotto and I met you, you allowed me to take your class. I was astounded at the wealth of information about beauty that the church had didn't ever really realize that it needed somebody like you that was really steeped in the, in the tradition to really kind of gather those things together. And in a sense, that's a lot about is a lot of what the book is, is you're bringing together the church's rich history about beauty um, together. So uh, maybe I would want to ask you just what are, how did you pick the figures that you kind of brought into the book? I know you, you talk about von Balthasar, you talk about JP2, you talk about um, Augustine. Um, do you just want to talk about how did you gather all those sources? Yeah, my, my dad has a good line. He says, when you're a Catholic theologian, you're either a plagiarist or a heretic, so you might as well be <laughs> a plagiarist. It's safer. So fortunately, the Western tradition in writings on beauty is, as you say, very, very rich. So before Christianity, we have right the great... Uh, perennial philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, who write quite a lot about beauty and not just about beauty abstractly, about different types of art. Plato says at the end of the symposium that the goal of human life is to pra- uh, pass from worldly beauty to otherworldly beauty. So mm-hmm. just a perfect fit with the Christian life. And then Augustine, profound meditations on beauty. Aquinas actually has very little to say about beauty, but because he is the church's universal theologian, his writings on beauty have had a massive impact. Mm. And then you have guys like, you know, John Paul II, who of course is a playwright. He's, he's, he's an artist himself. You have people like Jacques Maritain, a famous a French Catholic philosopher who wrote extensively about beauty, even gave lectures at the, uh, in DC at the uh, Smithsonian on beauty and art. And, uh, and von Balthasar, as you mentioned. So there's a lot of big names that everybody already knows just sort of trying to piece together their insights and their documents. Benedict XVI wrote about beauty and make it simple so that people can live it. People can understand it. People can sort of get, get their minds around it and, and take, my goal is to make it concretely livable. 
mm-hmm. say, this should change your life like this. And that, that was the purpose. Great. Um, so I think for our next little section here, it would be good to just kind of dive into a few aspects of the book. Obviously, you don't want to give everything away, but um, we can approach that right after our commercial break. Great. At Mount St. Mary's, the extraordinary experience we have here will create careers and lives that matter out there. Because from the minute we arrive and for every moment that follows, we live significantly. All right, welcome back to Catholic Town. So we're going to dive a little bit into the book that you wrote, uh, Dr. John Mark, on beauty. Um, I was kind of just leafing through the book. You know, I, I read it and I've gamed a lot from it and um, the morality behind making artwork, for example. There, there is a chapter specifically about the morality behind art making. This is a concept that I never heard in school. Obviously, I went to a, a secular art college, but even the idea that there would be a moral, um, a moral compass in what you create and a responsibility to what you create. That was uh, groundbreaking for me. Um, so, you know, I, w- I wish that I have a lot of friends that are artists that I would really like to get this kind of information out to. But just to start this off, I kind of just leaf through the book and kind of, you know, it's separated in, into chapters and you kind of talk about different types of beauty. Um, so I thought we could start off, you, you start the book talking about nature um, as the basis of beauty, as a basis of created beauty. I thought that would be a good place to start, obviously, because um, at the Grotto, a lot of people come here because of that, because of nature. So people come here to kind of escape um, the daily grind, um, and they come to the gardens here with the Catholic devotional statues. There's... Um, a stream running from the top of the mountain. People hear the gurgling water. They see the trees and they praise God for it. So I think that would be a good place to kind of enter in. Why is nature so important in the topic of beauty? Good. Well, nature is, is really helpful. I think first of all, cause it's a kind of common ground. Everybody really, regardless of your background recognizes that nature is, is gorgeous, right? Whether it's sunsets or grand canyons or mountains or desert landscapes. And the question is what, characterizes nature? What is it about nature that we find so beautiful? And secondly, how does that reflect God? Because that's another key element in the Catholic understanding of beauty, which is that nature's beauty reflects God and God's character as the artist. So the two things that I honed in on is that nature is orderly. That is, nature corresponds to laws, to patterns. But nature is also surprising. One of the reasons that the ancients were not able to develop experimental science is because they thought that nature was necessary. So the way you figure necessary things out is you sit down with pen and paper, like math, and you just work it out for yourself. But nature, it turns out, is not necessary. It doesn't correspond to logical laws, which means if you want to understand it, you have to go out and look at it. You have to actually go to the gallery of nature with your microscope and your telescope and be surprised by it. So nature, in addition to order, or to being orderly, is also surprising. And this is what I use throughout the book as sort of the summary, the formula for beauty. Beauty is a combination of order and surprise. But I think that's also helpful because it shows how God is reflected in nature. Because order reflects intelligence. But surprise, things not being necessary, things being gratuitous, contingent, Surprise reflects freedom. 
so that we know that this author of nature is intelligent because he made it orderly, but we also know he's free because he surprises us with it. We know now that the artist of nature is a person, and we see his personality expressed in everything he's made, from tree to mountain to lake. So I was going to bring up order and surprise after this, so it perfectly links in, but um, you kind of go in later talking about temptations away from beauty and using surprise without order as one of those, and then also order without surprise. I was wondering if you could just give a an explanation of that, maybe examples? Yes, absolutely. So again, the formula for beauty, what is beauty? My answer is a combination of order and surprise. This reflects God. It reflects our nature because of course we're intelligent and free too. It's what we're made for. And it gives a kind of very unique pleasure because order gives a soothing pleasure. It gives a calming, tranquil pleasure, but surprise gives a thrilling pleasure. So Beauty has this combination of calming the soul and yet exciting the emotions. Very, very powerful. Well, what people will do in this society is they'll rip those two pleasures apart. They will say, I can't have both, so I better settle for one or the other. One or the other. And either they will choose banality, that is order without surprise. And that means repetitious, routine, dull, boring, safe, secure, we were not made for that. We were not made to be safe. We were not made to be me- mechanical or repetitive. Or they will settle, settle for the other half of beauty, surprise apart from order. And that's perversion. That's where you do weird stuff just to get a thrill factor. That's where things get dark, twisted. A lot of art now, but also in the past, is based on freaky stuff happening to people and the bizarre macabre shock that that gives. So look at a lot of people's lives. They are vacillating between two broken halves of beauty. Mm -hmm. They go to their work, they sit in a cubicle, they do something boring and repetitive and to them meaningless during the day, the banal, banal, Mm -hmm. and then they go home and they Netflix binge or they look at porn or they look at violence or sexuality or broken relationships and they get surprised without order. So I believe a lot of people today are living their entire life has broken halves of beauty. And it's it's literally commuting from one broken half of beauty to the other. When you talked about that in class, it resonated so deeply with me because I, I realized that was what was going on in, in parts of my life, but also in a lot, a lot, I saw a lot of that at art school with the art that people were making, but just in everybody, the, the fracture between order and surprise and people many times. Um, I remember I, left the Catholic faith because I found it not surprising. I felt an intense banality to it. And I opted for just running right to the other fractured half. So I'm like, well, let me just do surprise without order then, because at least I'm feeling something exhilarating. And when I came back to the faith, feeling that grace hit me from Jesus and realizing, oh my gosh, Jesus is not banal. Like there's the institution that at times can be banal because of a bunch of human factors. But you start reading about the lives of the saints. You start reading about these great heroes and it's order and surprise simultaneously. It's almost, it's so special and so eternal that you, you almost don't believe that it can exist. It's rare. And you go into that in your class. You, you say the reason that people break those apart is because order and surprise demands discipline. 
Um, it demands that you, for example, I think it might have been an example you used. You learn a song on the piano, a fairly simple, you know, do, 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 whatever. Very simple. Then you go to the next song in the songbook, and it's a little bit more complicated. You try it for a few times, and you just, you, you give up. You you decide this is too much. So you just start banging on the piano or doing something else to capture people's attention. But you've, at that point, gone from the demands of a deeper order. That's how you talked about it in class. You say, once order becomes banal because it's become repetitious, you've memorized it, then you have to dive deeper into a deeper order. So, for example, a, a more complicated um, song on the piano. And if you give up on that, that demand, then you're going to run to something else. Yes, exactly. So we get familiar with things and then are not able to be surprised by them. The people who commit to understanding something and, and becoming good at something ever more deeply, they're the ones. So for instance, I, I know how baseball works, right. but I'm not a baseball fan. I don't really know that much about it. So I find baseball very boring not because I understand it deeply, but because I don't. Mm. It's actually the people who know the most about baseball who are continually being surprised by it. Mm. I, I don't know enough to be surprised, interestingly. It's ignorance that makes it impossible for me to be surprised. Baseball fans say, I've been watching this game 40 years. I never saw a thing like that. <laughs> I don't say that because I haven't been watching it hardly at all. Right, you have no frame of reference. So this is what's very interesting. Familiarity blinds you to beauty, but intimacy opens your eyes to it. So you must become intimate with a person or a feature of reality or a skill to be delighted by its beauty. If you're not intimate, you just become familiar and then you become dulled to it. And, and going back to the lives of the saints, that's why the saints are so perfect. The saints live a life of order and surprise. It's difficult, but I just want to mention G.K. Chesterton's fabulous mm. formula for living beautifully, where he says, break the conventions, but keep the commandments. If you break the conventions, you know you'll be living a life that's surprising to yourself and to others. But if you keep the commandments, you know you'll be living a life that is ordered, that is proportioned to your nature. You're living the sort of life a human being ought to live. And that's precisely what the saints do. <laughs> they, they surprise us by breaking the conventions and they surprise us by at the same time living the commandments out. That to me is one of the most powerful points about your book is that, that saints um, are perfect glorious examples of order and surprise because there is that danger of say you're a Catholic um, and you're in a Catholic community. There is the danger of um, not relying on a radical relationship with Christ and getting guidance from the Holy spirit, obviously staying within the, the moral uh, dogma of the church, but there is a danger of just kind of becoming, uh, becoming, what is the word for it? Homogenized with the culture there. Maybe God is calling you to do something very specific, but you have a fear because you're like, well, I don't know what these people are going to think about it. And that I think is a good example of convention coming in. Maybe, you know, God throughout time is asking St. Francis, like, please build my church. He starts doing crazy things like building an actual church with rocks from around town and getting people involved. Um, stripping naked in front of the Pope uh, to renounce, uh, to be part of poverty. These are things that people, probably Catholics, and you could say kind of a Pharisee type of thing with Jesus, where Jesus is completely good, but 
he's so radical in his orderliness and his surprise that he gets crucified, right, from the religious leaders. So that's a perfect example of orderly surprise is he's astounding the religious religious institution of his time, but he's not doing anything immoral. Yeah, I think the role of tradition is very important to get super clear. Tradition is essential for order, and we are, as Catholics, people of tradition. The danger is that we become traditionalists, and traditionalist means that we're so afraid of the new opportunities of the present. The way I define a traditionalist is a traditionalist is someone who sees the present more as a threat than an opportunity. And when you see a threat, what do you do? You go for security and people turn to order for security. They circle the wagons. They say this worked for us in the past. It'll work for us now. Let's just keep saying the same thing or doing the same thing that we've always done. And when you do that, you empty out the thrill, the delight, the newness. Again, God is a God who makes all things new. He is, as Augustine says, beauty ever ancient, ever, ever new. He calls us to sing a new song to the Lord. So if we extract creativity out of the way we live our tradition, we are doing it an extreme disservice. I love the context context of that because not only is it playing it safe, but it's also not living to the full potential that God intended for his creature. Um, I think this is a good time to take a, a little break. Okay. you have many options when it comes to giving. So why not choose your mountain home? From enhancing academic offerings to athletic programming, your support ensures that our students continue to lead lives of significance. To make your gift, visit msmary.edu today. Welcome back to Catholic Town. I'm here with uh, Dr. John Mark Miravalli. So we're going to keep talking about the beauty book uh, that he wrote. One of your chapters is specifically about the human body. Now, you talked about how nature um, is that example, um, something that everybody can kind of agree is beautiful. People don't tend to argue that a tree is beautiful or not. Everyone's pretty much in agreement. There's a few outliers, you know, tree haters out there. But I was wondering if you could kind of talk, why did you devote a whole chapter to the human body? What's so beautiful about the human body that it deserved its own chapter? Okay, well, let's go back actually to the first chapter, which is relating to how beauty is an experience usually for us of an immaterial reality taking physical form. So I begin the book with a poem by Walt Whitman, where the poet talks about going to a astronomy lecture. And everybody's putting up the different formulas, the scientific principles that astronomers use to chart the courses of, of astral bodies. And the poet is getting really bored. He is not enjoying it. So he goes outside and it's late at night and he just looks up in silence at the stars. So what's the distinction there? Well, the distinction there is between the truth of science and the complementary, not conflicting, the complementary appreciation of beauty. When we understand something, we try to extract a principle out of it. In this case, a formula for astrophysicists. But when we try to appreciate beauty, we don't extract any immaterial thing out of it. We appreciate the spiritual significance of material things. So, so that's one way to describe the experience of beauty, appreciating the spiritual significance of physical things. That's why you look at all the arts are designed to create a kind of physical image, even if only in imagination. And then not to sort of spell out necessarily the spiritual significance, but to let you rest in it and delight in it. Okay, fine. 
So spiritual significance in physical things. Well, what physical things have the greatest spiritual significance? Human bodies, because human bodies are actually part of the spiritual reality that, that is the human person. The, the body doesn't just express an idea, it expresses an intellect. The body doesn't just express some immaterial reality, but a timeless immaterial person. So the body is the most beautiful physical object in the universe. And that's why it is the only object that God himself became. And this presents really significant challenges for us morally because the body is so beautiful that it's mesmerizing, particularly when sexual desire uh, factors into the equation. It's, it's absolutely, it can be consuming the beauty of the human body, and so it, it has to be guarded very carefully. And the beauty of the human body is beautiful to the extent that it expresses the spirituality of the person. So anyone who depicts or exposes the human body has to be really careful to make sure that the body is being beautiful by expressing the human person and not by concealing the human person. Because misuse or misexposure of the human body can make you actually forget that, there's actually, that, that, that there is in fact a human person uh, who, who is being illuminated and lived through uh, that body. You're reminding me of a quote that I saw from John Paul II and uh, an argument against looking at pornography. And it was so counterintuitive when I first heard it, but it really hit home for me. Like, oh, that's what it is. And he, and he basically, it's a paraphrase, but he says, the problem with pornography is not that you're seeing too much of the person, it's that you're seeing too little. Yes, you're that's seeing exactly too right. little of the person. And it just, I had always conceptualized the idea of pornography is being able to see more than you're allowed to, the reality, and then John Paul II made it so clear, no, you're actually blinding yourself. Yeah, Fulton Sheen had a very similar phrase. He said, in pornography, we take the fig leaf off the genitalia and put it on the face. So we cover the ability to actually relate to the other one as a person. We're actually no longer seeing the person through the body. We're just limiting our attention to the body and specifically to the most sensational aspects of the body. And you're getting that surprise without order. And this is a huge topic. I um, did some research on pornography recently and right under, um, you can look up the top visited, top visited websites on the internet. It might be regional, for example, just for uh, North America. I was looking at the ones for North America. Um, right under Google and social media platforms, it's like Google, Yahoo, Facebook, porn, 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 sure. porn. And there's all these crazy statistics about um, they're making more money annually than the NFL, the NBA, all these sure. other combined. So this underworld of disordered surprise. And as you put in class, people looking for beauty, people looking for pornography is people looking in a strange, distorted way for God because God is order and surprise. So they're trying to get what you're talking about. They're just misguided or yeah that was that was a huge that was a huge realization for me um is that people who have become addicted to perversion aren't monsters they're just like the rest of us they were made for surprise people are looking for the surprise they were made for we were (laughs) 
we were made to live thrilling lives. They're just looking for it disconnected from the order it's meant to be joined to. And that, that, that to me was so helpful to, to be able to say, look, I know exactly why you're doing this. It, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because looking for surprise apart from order, like any vice, is subject to the law of diminishing returns. It becomes harder and harder to get surprised. So basically, you look for something that's more shocking than that. You, you, <laughs> all you have to hope for at a certain level is to find something more hellishly freakish than the next to remind you that you're alive. And that that is hell on earth. But the good news is, as with the rest of beauty, discipline is necessary. Self-restraint can restore your potential to be surprised by goodness. If you rest- take, take, take food, take, a, take ice cream. If you eat ice cream at every meal, you're no longer going to appreciate it because it's not special. You will no longer be so, you won't say, man, this is good. You'll just be accustomed to it. And as we said before, familiarity makes it impossible to see beauty. It will take heroic effort, but no matter how addicted someone is to sexual slavery, to sexual surprise, separated from the order of interpersonal spousal relationship, no matter how addicted they are, if they are willing to set out on this path of self-denial, then one day they will be surprised by what is good again even though now all they can imagine is being surprised by what is sick. And I think the way that you put it in class was um, a, a road back to innocence, that mm-hmm. that there's this idea that, oh, I'm not innocent anymore, so there's really nothing I can do. I should just keep, you know, entertaining these desires, these, de- you know. But you're, you're arguing that, no, if you step back and you deny yourself those impulses, slowly... You were going to go down a road that leads you back to innocence. Right. And and, and for instance, a a porn addict has not been surprised by the beauty of a woman for a long, long time. And he knows he wants to be surprised by the goodness of a woman's beauty. If he resists the urge to look for surprise where he shouldn't, pretty soon the only thing left that can surprise him will be the good. Mm. And that will be an unbelievably joyful day. Beautiful. Um, So when we started this podcast, we kind of made a resolution. We weren't going to cut corners and and talk about a few difficult topics if they came up. But just to kind of touch briefly, the church right now is going through a bit of a tough time in terms of um, sex scandals. Things are always on TV. Um, What would you say? So there's kind of we're talking about beauty, but there is this kind of perception of the church from some people. Um, that this is an ugly time for the church, that people are getting kind of rocked by scandals. How can we, how can we separate what's, what's true, good, and beautiful from the, the ugliness that's kind of being put into people's faces? Okay. I think I, I have two suggestions, and they're just that. One is a suggestion to remember that the way Christ works is Christ takes sin and uses it to contribute to glory. So, so, the ugliest event that ever happened was the innocent son of God being put to death. That was the, the, the vilest. And the way the catechism describes, it, it's, it's lovely how it enumerates all the twisted sickness, whether it's the physical yanking or, or pounding or piercing or beatings or whipping or blood through the forehead or spit on his face. That's very ugly. Whether it's 
the betrayal of his friends or the embarrassment of his friends or the embarrassment in front of his enemies or the mockery of, of crowds who don't know at all that the, the, the public scandal factor, whether it's the, the shamefulness of the legal authorities who are supposed to enforce justice and not allow injustice. Ugly, ugly, ugly. That's what saved the world. That whole thing, God used all that ugliness. And the example I use is there's some sculptures down at the DC Zoo where they take a bunch of trash and they turn them, turn it into statues of, of animals. That's, that's perfect. That's exactly what he does. He takes all the trash of the world and he turns it into the masterpiece of salvation. So we can have faith that our God is a God who can make great outwork, artwork out of any disaster. And we don't know what it'll be till the last, I don't know what the, you know, the, the last, the last dab of paint is on the canvas. But we do know that what the church is going through now will contribute to God's masterpiece because you can't beat his beauty with your ugliness. He will just use your own ugliness to contribute to his plan. So that, that's one point of hope to remember. This is how God does things. Where ugliness abounds, beauty abounds the more in his world and in his church, whether you can see it now or not. The second thing I would say, is, and this is a little more practical maybe, stop looking at examples of, of ugly Catholics and start looking at the saints. And we have not done a good job, particularly in this divided Catholic time, we have not done a good job rallying around people we should all agree on our models of sanctity. So we need a Mother Teresa. We need a John Paul II. I know we've got one already, someone who can unite people across the gamut of Catholic, non-Catholic, non-Christian to say, this is an exquisite human being. I know there's people like that. What we need to do, I would suggest, is start promoting them, talking about them, posting about them on social media so that we remember, actually, actually, the part of the moral obligations of recognizing beauty is that you look at it. Mm. That that's the job of the viewer, not just the producers. It is our job. We can look at walking dead or we can look at Michelangelo's work. That's up to us. And we can't complain. Oh my gosh, the walking dead is so horrible. Yeah. Well don't look at it and it won't have an impact. Look at something sublime. Let's do the same with the membership in the church. So I have a few more questions for you. The, the podcast will be ending soon, but let's just take a short break. How do you want to be remembered? Please consider including Mount St. Mary's in your will or state plan. Remembering the mountain your plan is easy, qualifies you for membership in our 1808 society, and will provide opportunities for future students to call the mount their home. For more information, visit our website at msmary.edu. Welcome back to Catholic Town. We're sitting with Dr. John Mark Maravalli talking about his book about beauty. So we, we talked a little bit earlier about nature being beautiful. Then we kind of dug in a little bit more saying the human body is the most beautiful object within nature. And then near the end of your book, you talk about the Virgin Mary so it's kind of like nature. Then we're kind of singling out the human body is the most beautiful. And then out of those human bodies, Mary is the most beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote that chapter? I don't know if I can talk a little bit about it. But I can, I can <laughs> certainly talk a lot, lot about it. So I'll, I'll try. Well, let's start by saying that if beauty is order and surprise, Mary is the most orderly and surprising 
created person, because remember Jesus Christ, even though he's a creature in his humanity, is not a created person. He's a divine person. Mary is the most orderly and surprising and therefore the most beautiful created person ever made. She is the one who surprises us when we're reading scripture. Did you know, did you know that no one responds to an angelic messenger with explicit acceptance and obedience until Mary? She is the first one to get it right. And so her order is surprising. Something new is happening. Galatians 4.4 calls it the fullness of time when God sends his son born of a woman. The first woman had a fallen angel come to her and said, if you will do what I say, then man can become like God. And the new angel came to the new woman and said, if, if you do what I say, God can become like man. It's a shocking orderly parallel. The first woman comes from the first man without sexual procreation. The new man comes from the new woman without sexual procreation. We have the tide changing at Mary. She is the high watermark where God starts winning because humanity is ready. She, when God's perfect love for us took human form, it took the form of a man, Jesus Christ. When our perfect love for God took human form, it took the form of a woman the Blessed Mother. So the entire created structure is made iconic. It's made visible and startlingly beautiful in Christ and Mary, which is why, of course, they are the most popular subjects in all of art history to be depicted. So there's so many angles we could go in terms of her beauty. I'll end with this because I I know there's time issues. The Holy Spirit is not, he does not take human form. The Holy Spirit does not talk to us in a way that we can hear like God the Father does in the scriptures. So how do we get to know? How do we get to see? How do we get to sense? How do we get physical contact, so to speak, through the Holy Spirit? Well, the Catechism says that the Holy Spirit is expressed through his effects. In other words, the Holy Spirit is like an artist. You get to know him through his artwork. And the Catechism says that the masterpiece of the Son and Spirit's mission is Mary. Mary is the greatest effect out of all the saints, right? The Holy Spirit has made a lot of masterpieces. We canonize them. That's what we do. We canonize the saints, not just so that we can have good examples, but so we can actually perceive the character of the Holy Spirit. Well, that means that the greatest saint is one who allows us to perceive the character of the Holy Spirit best, that's going to be Mary. So to bring that back to what we talked about from chapter one, if beauty is the spiritual significance of what you can see materially, then Mary is the core moment where the spiritual significance, the spiritual character of the Holy Spirit becomes visible in physical form. So she is the supreme masterpiece of the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so by getting to know Mary, We can know the Holy Spirit better. Of course, by getting to know the Holy Spirit, we get to know Jesus better. And when we know Jesus, we know the Father. So Mary is actually a pivotal point of access through beauty. Paul VI said that when we meditate on the relationship between Mary and the Holy Spirit, we will understand the way of beauty that brings us to God. So you end your book um, with just a little annex note about uh, humor and comedy. So I figured it'd probably be a good way to end the podcast. This is a little um, outro. Maybe if you have a really good joke, you can tell us that too. Not not forcing. No, I love joke. it. I'll, I'll tell you one. Um, yesterday was John Paul II's 
uh, feast day, mm-hmm. St. John Paul II, mm-hmm. which by the way, I met him, which makes me a second class relic. <laughs> so now when you, when you rub my head, uh, it's no longer superstition, it's veneration. And my favorite JP two joke is he and uh, Queen Elizabeth are at Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. And it's a very exciting time because it's Rome and London, Italy and England. It's the Pope and the Queen, the Catholics and the, and, and the Anglicans are together. The Brits down below are going crazy. And Queen Elizabeth says to John Paul II, I'll bet you that with a simple wave of my hand, I can make everyone down there go mad for three weeks straight. I'll bet you 10 pounds. And John Paul II says, you are on. And so she does her little Queen Elizabeth wave and everybody goes down, goes nuts, you know, for 15 minutes or so. John Paul II hands over the 10 pounds. And then he says, well, I will bet you 20 euro that with a simple nod of my head, I will make all the Irish go crazy in Ireland for two weeks. And Queen Elizabeth says, all right, you're on. And John Paul II headbutted her (laughs) and won the bet. That's my favorite JP2 joke. Big fan. Well, very good. Um, just to end, there's more people laughing in the studio, by the way, that had a better response, but you can't hear it. Yeah, I, I wasn't near the mic. You have to be really close yeah, to I want people to know that. Yeah, that is, I hope you were laughing in your car. Chris was on were. the ground. It's fine. That's oh. fine. That's a good joke. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for people about how to live uh, a beautiful life? Um, uh, as just last parting words, all the things we've been saying, mm-hmm. Uh, try to keep the commandments and try to do strange, unexpected things as you do it. The rich young man, Jesus tells him to do something orderly and then to do something surprising. The orderly things we all have to do are the same things that everyone else has to do. Mm. We have to, we have to honor God, honor our father and mother. We have to be chaste. We have to be honest. We have to not make money our main objective in life. Everybody has to do that. So do you. That's order. That's why the first thing Jesus says to the rich young man, when he's asking What should I do to be perfect? He tells him to do the same thing everyone else does. Keep the commandments. But the rich young man said, what further do I lack? Because he knew that it it takes more for me personally to be living my life beautifully than just to be doing what everyone else should be doing. And then Jesus gives him something surprising, something a little too surprising at first, because beauty makes demands. Beauty demands sacrifice. But of course it's worth it because... At the end, your life will be, as we've said, the perfect combination of peace and excitement that we all want. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mirabali. This has been an amazing episode. Uh, thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge on beauty. And um, everybody go out there and live a surprising but orderly life. Thank you very much.